the episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. question that I have for you, I want to set this up by also explaining something that you probably are already aware of. When Jerry Coop was in the Keepers, it seems like there is a split down the middle between people who feel that Jerry was a victim. And also there's people who believe that Jerry may not have been fully truthful. One question that many listeners brought was because they saw the keepers, of course, as I hope everyone has who's listening. They felt that you seem to think that Jerry was possibly not telling the full truth. Do you still feel like that's the case, or how has that changed? I certainly feel that way, and I want to underline again, this is my opinion. I don't know what the ultimate reality is, I only know that when I interviewed him for two hours about all of this and what occurred on the night she vanished, he first told me that he had no, quote, sexual relationship at all with Sister Kathy. He told me that, quote, ours was a platonic relationship based on love of God and based on Catholic teaching. And I said, fine. But I said, Father Kube, I'm holding a letter that you received and that the police recovered from Sister Kathy, written a couple of days before her death. And in the letter, she says things like, I want you inside me. My period came. I could only conclude then that he didn't tell me the truth. And so I said, wait a minute, doesn't that letter suggest otherwise? My period came. He then told me, okay, okay, I didn't tell you the truth, but it wasn't because I'm hiding anything. It was because I don't want reporters like you to sully her name and drag her in the mud. And that's the only reason I didn't tell the truth. It's not for any other reason whatsoever. I just, the gutter press and so on, as if I was interested in somehow painting a grotesque, uh, vulgar picture of sexual activity. And so I was to blame in our discussion for forcing him to lie because he knew I would smear it and make it all ugly and so on. In fact, I quoted from the letter that Detective Bud Romer had gotten from him and gave me a copy of. I had the actual letter, it was a photocopy, but it was the letter 
the actual letter from the detective who had obtained this. Brother Coob told me I gave him that letter. He didn't worm it out of me. I I volunteered it to show that we were friends and that we were close and I wouldn't be involved in harming her and so on. I said, fine. Thank you. Understood. But the fact is, he didn't tell me the truth. Well, again, I joke. I might be Irish, but even the Irish can understand. You've heard the old expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. If a man doesn't tell you the truth, I thought at the time, then you have to treat him as a liar. So in my opinion, he was absolutely untruthful about the circumstances surrounding all of this. Do I believe personally that he was present at the nun's killing or culpable? No, I don't know exactly what went on in the series of steps that led up to the nun's death. But I can tell you, I can only quote, not me, but one of the great detectives of that day who worked for 30 years at the Baltimore Baltimore County Police Department told me later, and I quote, if Coob didn't do it, he knows who did. I think that is an accurate statement, but it's only an opinion again. Do I think that all of the circumstances surrounding the night she vanished have been truthfully told by Coob and others? Absolutely not. Their scenario makes no sense whatsoever. It's ludicrously flawed. No matter how you look at it, Coob claims he got a call in the evening, I don't know, 10 o'clock maybe, and that uh, it was from Sister Helen, as you know, Sister Kathy's roommate, and that she was alarmed and agitated and said that Sister Kathy had not returned from that shopping trip. It was now 10 or so, 10 o'clock at night, and they were, Sister uh, Helen was frightened. And immediately, he, he uh, spoke to his friend, Pete, and, and, and the two of them had, fortunately, they could account for their movements in all of this, because they had gone to dinner, and they had shared a dinner and gone to a movie, specifically Easy Rider. Jerry Koob and Brother Pete ate dinner on Route 1 on the way to their movie. The movie was from 8 p.m. to 9.40. They then returned to Koob's office by 10.30. Koob's description of it surprised me because he didn't say, oh, well, she probably met a girlfriend from her college or something, and they're out having a drink or something and having dinner, and I'm sure it'll be fine. He said, what? It's 10 o'clock and she's not home? Brother Pete, run with me to the car. We're driving up there immediately from Annapolis, where he lived uh, at that Jesuit community, Manresa. And they both raced up there, supposedly. The Baltimore Sun, the next morning after the nun was declared missing, interviews Father Pete, who says, I was actually in the uh, Christian Brothers, uh, you know, monastery, 50 miles away in uh, Beltsville, Maryland. And when I heard, I too jumped in my car and raced down there. It's possible that the crime reporter at the Sun got that wrong. I'm not going to make any declaration, but it, 
It doesn't look too good. Usually these crime guys, I was one myself, crime reporters really work hard to get all of the details right because if he messes up too often and gets the details wrong around major crimes like this, he won't last very long at all. So usually they're right on it. It is possible, nonetheless, that it was a slight error of some kind. But the fact is, he reports one scenario, Hoob reports another, and then when they go to the apartment, they sit for hours. Oh, dear, where can she be? They never do go up to the shopping center to look. Did she run out of gas? Is she sick? Did something happen in the store and they had to take her to the hospital sick? They simply sit holding Sister Helen's hand until they supposedly decide, oh, dear, now it's so late. We better phone in a missing persons call. And they call the Baltimore County Police and report that this woman, this nun, is missing. The missing persons report was made through the Baltimore City Police Department at 11.35 p.m. And then they wait for more hours. And then they go for a walk to calm their nerves. And what do they find? Oh, my gosh. That's her car right on the parking lot here. How can that be? If she's missing from the shopping center and some poor drunk or drug crazy abducted her on her way out of the shopping center or something like that, why is her car in the parking lot? This becomes so ludicrous that years ago, hell, 12 years ago now, I asked the two detectives at Baltimore County uh, Police who had worked on this cold case for years, how does her car end up back on the apartment parking lot and was actually told straightforward without a flicker of humor, well, the, the street thug who abducted and probably raped and killed her, he needed a ride home. And he only lived a few blocks away probably, so he just drove the car back and dumped it and walked on home. I said to them then right before they threw me out, are you telling me that a killer drives the car back, risking the chance that he will be observed, reparking the car on the parking lot, and then runs home from there? They told me with a straight face, we've never found anything other than that scenario and never found a link to Maskell or anything else. Good day, Mr. Nugent. We're very busy here. Goodbye. And I was run out the door and on my way. All of that tells me this. So I personally do not feel that uh, in any way that, that Father Coob was directly involved at that moment in dispatching the nun. I will tell you this. I don't think Father Maskell was either. I think they called, and I'll give you, I think I might have mentioned this before, and I'll keep it short. In my experience of priests and the church and the way that world runs and so on, those guys don't have the cojones, you know the Spanish word, or the real down and dirty in your face, look out, here I come. They get other people to do their dirty work. I don't think Maskell would have had the courage, this is opinion, to actually take somebody out and whack them in the head and kill them. I think, though, that they could pick up the phone at any time and say, we got a real mess here. The nun is about to go public with this abuse. There are high-level politicians and there are police involved. It's a potential 
uh, political scandal as well as a police scandal and a, obviously a church scandal. We need an enforcer. Get that tough as nails cop that is not afraid of anything on this planet with the big club to come over her, over here, and either threaten her into shutting up or knock her in the head. And I think that's why the car gets the car is brought there because when she came home, somebody was waiting for her right on that parking lot, took her in his car, and the car never really moved again. It's true it was found at an odd angle on the edge of the lot, but it clearly was the, the last thing Sister Helen ever said publicly, and I have the clipping in my office, quote, right before she sadly died, I think of cancer herself some years later, she said, just leave, let me leave it with this. Whoever put that car there wanted it to be found. I find that to be a highly relevant and potentially revealing comment by her. So I'll end my answer to your question as best I can. Although I have no idea whatsoever if, if Father Coob was involved in this whole sequence of events, I will not tell you this. I will quote Harry Bannon, the now deceased detective who died after a few years of retirement over on the Eastern Shore, who told me point blank, and I, you, the best way I can do it is to imitate, you'll humor me. He said, with that wonderful Eastern Shore, Baltimore twang, he said, Tom, who was about to break? We had him. He was scared to death. He didn't know what the hell was going on. I'm telling you, that man was as frightened. He was crying some of the time and begging and trying to, can I go home? I don't want to do this and so on. And we knew as cops, he was 10 minutes maybe from, in the beans. And then the church lawyers showed up. I'm quoting Harry Bannon, Detective Bannon now. The church lawyers showed up and they said, you're harassing one of our priests. If you keep it up, you're going to get in big trouble. Either charge Coob with a crime or let him go. And the chief of that day, part of the incredibly corrupt political machine uh, control of the entire city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland, by the way, that chief said, detectives, I've had a visit from some Jesuit priests up here. Either charge him or let him go. You don't have enough for a charge right now. He's out the door in 10 minutes or you're in trouble. They let him go. And then Harry Bannon concluded his commentary to me by saying, Tom, if he didn't do it, he sure as hell knows who did. When I put all of that together, all the reporting I've done, and I've heard reports that Hoob has said, oh, he's all wrong and he's got it wrong and it's reckless and whatever. I noticed that no one has come against me in a court of law to suggest that my reporting was defamation. I did not intend defamation in any way. And I have said over and over again in my stories and in interviews I've done, I don't know exactly what all of this was. I only know what I witnessed. He told me one thing, and it wasn't true. Harry Bannon told me that he knew damn right well what all of this was, and he got away without having to answer for any of it. And I take that to be the reality here, and I'll stand by it, and I am ready to go into any setting, 
legal or otherwise, and defend my reporting. I'll only say this without getting egotistical. So far, nobody has told me, Nugent, you got that wrong. It didn't happen at 9 o'clock. It happened at 8 o'clock. Or the car wasn't, a, in this case, a Ford. It was a Chevy Impala. I'm waiting for someone to challenge a single fact in my reporting as inaccurate. And the first big story, as you know, ran in 2005. That's 14 years ago, and no one has challenged it. Uh, if you have something that shows I was wrong, love to hear from you. Uh, get in touch. Otherwise, I take it that nobody believes I, my job was inaccurate. If it wasn't, and I reported it the way it was, I think that the story that Hoob told ever since is highly dubious and, in fact, unbelievable. And I'll stand behind that, and it's all I can say. Tom, just curious, were you able to listen to another podcast we did with a lady? Uh, her name was Sharon Bush. She was friends with Sister Russell. No, I was not. I didn't. I listened to several in preparation for all of this, but as okay. you know, and to your credit, your <laughs> reporting has been your reporting has been vast and voluminous, and I've got to even at my advanced age, I've got to earn a living and support a family, so I don't sure. have infinite time. I, I haven't. I did not hear the Sharon Bush tape. Okay, so Sharon, who was very good friends with Russell, she had attended EO and she had graduated. She was there the night that Kathy disappeared. In fact, she had gone over to Kathy's apartment because Sister Russell, she was borrowing sweater or something. I can't remember which one was borrowing what. So Sharon went to the apartment and was exchanging that article of clothing, and she actually spoke to Sister Kathy. And Kathy had told her that she was going out to go shopping. And Sharon immediately realized that it was much later than the two ladies normally would be out shopping. She shared what that conversation was like, and she was there shortly before Kathy left to go shopping. She also shared with us that she had gone back home and Sister Russell calls her. Uh, she remembers it clearly because she had recently gotten the, you know, the new cool thing was to have your own line in your bedroom, you know, and she had her own number in her bedroom and uh, Sister Russell had called her and asked her, hey, have you seen or heard from Kathy? And Sharon said that she thought that was very weird because she wasn't really good friends with Kathy. She was friends with Russell. So she thought it was kind of odd. You know, you know she was like, why would I have heard from Kathy? You know, speaking with Sharon, we got a lot of things out of it. We've been able to narrow the timeline down a little bit. And in, in the past couple of weeks, Gemma and I have gotten new information that we're currently working through to continue to try to narrow down the timeline in terms of what led up and what times those events happened prior to Kathy disappearing and immediately after that moment. I really wish that uh, Jerry would be willing to let us speak with him about that 
just because, and of course, I don't fault anyone for not wanting to be on a podcast. You know, I, that's definitely a decision for everyone to make on their own. But I really wish that we could just so that we could narrow, that, that would help us narrow down the timeline, which as you are fully aware, that's incredibly important because of all the pieces that follow. One of those very surprising things that Sharon told us, which will go back to the question on if the police knew about the abuse, Sharon said that early the next morning, uh, she had, you know, heard again from Sister Russell. So she, her mom brought her back to the apartment. As she approached the apartment, the detectives were there and there were lots of cop cars outside. And she remembers walking in to the apartment and Sister Russell approached her along with a detective in a trench coat. And Sister Russell introduced her to this detective and explained that they're trying to find Sister Kathy. And with Russell there with her, the detective in the trench coat asked her a question, just one question, which is very telling. The detective asks Sharon, did anyone at Keogh do anything to you that you didn't want them to do? And she said, in fact, that it was such a surprise that immediately her first thought was, well, there was this kid that kissed me. And the detective clearly realized that wasn't an answer that he was looking for. And so he said, okay, thank you. You know, that's not what I'm looking for. And to us to hear that is so telling, as I'm sure you realize, because Russell was right there. And if that question was out of left field, I just feel that Sister Russell would have said something to share to, to share it. You know, like why would he have asked you that question? Right. Because uh, Sharon wasn't a student at Keogh any longer. You know, she had already graduated. So speaking with Sharon definitely cleared up a lot of things. In fact, Sister Russell was Sharon's uh, maid of honor at her wedding. So they were they they were pretty good friends, and it was it was so nice to talk to Sharon to not only narrow that timeline and to learn that information, but also to understand the person that Russell was, which is so important, you know, just to know right. different people surrounding the story. I wanted to ask you, did you watch The Keepers yourself in full? And if you did, was there anything that caught your attention or piqued your curiosity? Well, of course. I think the thing that stands out the most was the incredible moment when Jerry Coop stated that the police had grilled him so relentlessly and, and, and so aggressively and had upset and disturbed him so much that one of their tactics was to bring part of the deceased nun's body to, into the room and show him part of her body, I think specifically her vagina, or a piece of uh, decomposed flesh, really, and said to her, to Father Coop, now, how do you like it? I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly. Of course, I don't have the, the actual dialogue script in front of me. But basically, Coop insisted that they told him, we hope you're happy now. What do you think we have here? Take a look at this. And they thrust this body part in front of him. And he then seemed to be at pains to show how cruel and unreasonable a psychological ploy of that kind was. 
Do you recall that moment, Shane, in the Keepers? Yeah, definitely. I found that not just bizarre. It was it lay outside my experience of reality. To tell, to insist that detectives would, and I have to use gentle language. I don't want to get grotesque and ridiculous here, but I I take it, assume that they had gotten a surgical instrument and removed a portion of the corpse, of the anatomy of the corpse, and then brought it to this priest who claimed that he was had no part in any of it and knew nothing about it, and thrust it right in front of him, I take it that what he must have meant in that moment in the keepers was that the brutal, heartless, vicious police were willing to subject him to the ultimate shocking horror of, of presenting the dead woman's part of her corpus, and he would suddenly snap and confess all. That lies beyond my experience. It's extremely hard for me to imagine, especially remember these police investigators were under the most careful scrutiny and being warned don't you don't you in any way abuse or or uh, bully these priests we've had Jesuit lawyers in here we are watching like a hawk and you're running afoul of the church to believe that against that pressure where they were ultimately told leave him alone and let him go that they would okay boys talk to the coroner we'll get a piece of her body and wave it of her and that'll make him snap that lies beyond it lies beyond anything that I know of in the world and so I my frankly my feeling at that moment watching it was that this might be a person who is no longer rationally stable and on top of things because I can't imagine making that part of your contribution to the keepers now, beyond that, it seemed eminently clear that their portrayal of the apparent uh, sequence of steps on the night when the nun vanished uh, simply made it overwhelmingly obvious that that account could not be true and that whatever was going on could, could only be a made-up story. I'll just tell you that my... As just a 50-year veteran reporter, for what it's worth, I've done many, many stories of this kind over decades. And usually what you find when you listen, sort out all the details and look at it, is the key question, is all of this credible or not? Is it credible that the two priests would learn only at 10 o'clock apparently, that the nun has not returned home, that instead of going to the shopping center to see if she's had a flat tire or engine breakdown or something, who knows, this, there were no cell phones, correct, in that day. Maybe she had a flat tire and she's busy working with the, you know, the truck service, AAA or whatever. Maybe she met an old girlfriend and they, they went and had a couple of beers and it stretched out a couple hours and she lost track of time. Instead of all of that, 
no, 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 no. We've got to jump in our cars. Get moving now. We've got to get up there now. I suspect, and again, this is only theory and speculation. I have not determined that it's in, in any way an accurate depiction. But for what it's worth, my experience as a reporter over many years tells me whatever went on in that apartment that night, they all knew about pretty early, and then they cooked up a story. There's another little-known fact about all of this that just might be pertinent here. I interviewed a witness at great length who lived next door. Uh, I think she lived in the adjoining apartment. I don't have the details, but it was right next door, a few feet. Her front wall in her apartment was 10, 12 feet from the carriage house apartment where the nun lived. She told me at enormous length, and I'll bet she's told you, at 8.05 approximately on that night, it was Friday, November 7, 1969. At around 8.05, she happened to go outdoors for some reason to get something out of her car or whatever, and she heard a terrible screaming argument with a man and a woman in which he was threatening her and telling her stuff like, keep this up and you'll be sorry, bitch. You'll never wish you were born and so on. And she was so struck by the violence of this shouting match that she lingered there for a minute or two, and then it slowly vanished, and she realized, I sure hope that woman is safe. Was that uh, the actual confrontation on the parking lot? All I can tell you, Shane, is that logic, simple human logic, for what grip I have on it, tells me something happened on the parking lot. Her car remembers, remember, remains right nearby. She went up to the apartment, or maybe they took her up. A shouting match ensues in the apartment. Maybe the cop with the billy club that we've talked about is in there too. If Scrooge and Brother Pete are there soon after that, really, two hours, at the most two and a half hours after that. Isn't it likely, doesn't it seem obvious to you that what happened was a shouting match in the apartment? She may have gotten angry and rebellious. I don't care what you say. You're not going to get away with it. You're abusing these girls. They're coming to me and they're crying and they're, you're, you're harming them and by God you're going to stop or leave or, or else I'll go public and somebody, maybe the cop with a big blunt instrument that by the way matches the wounds in her skull somebody says okay you want to get nasty you want to you want to quarrel when we're warning you, pow and he smacks her just to discipline her a little bit and then somebody yells oh my God She's not breathing. Are you serious? What do we do? Do we call an ambulance? Oh, my God, we're neck deep in abuse. She knew about it. The cops are involved. It's a horrible thing. What do we, oh, my God, what do we do? What do we do? And now they look at each other. She's dead. You hit her too hard, officer. She's dead. Now they sit down and they start talking. I don't want to be cynical. I don't want to be prejudiced against the church, but it seems very possible to me about the third thing they do in their panic is call 
downtown the Catholic Center, and they get one of their lawyers. It takes an hour, maybe. They get a lawyer on the phone, and within an hour, he's in the apartment. It's now maybe midnight. Their call to the missing persons at the police goes about 1 a.m. But let's say it's midnight now. And the Catholic Church lawyer is sitting with them, and he's saying, oh, my God. Do you realize what we have here? Everyone knows that this horrible stuff has been going on. Detective Romer told me before he died, and he'll permit me again, Tom, I don't care. I don't mind what they do, but them nuns and priests were shacking up down there at that man racer. There was all kind of hanky-panky. There was lesbian stuff going on. That was about as far from being a Catholic thing as you could imagine. He said, now, I don't mind. It's not my business. They can do what they want. But by God, if it affected this investigation, that's something different. They was neck deep in all kind of sex triangles and sex ring and all this. And all at once, they're looking at maybe a dead woman, a dead woman who's in the middle of it, and the whole goddamn thing is going to come apart. And the sky's going to fall. So they sit with the lawyer. And they talk. And it's pretty grim. Endless cups of coffee. And what do we do now? And the lawyer helps probably while in between calls to the archbishop. I'm speculating. Let me remind everybody of that. I don't know if this is true. But my guess is Paul probably went to the highest press. For all I know, Paul went to uh, Rome. But when the call was over, it was clear. Take care of this. Fix this now. And so we begin to get the next stage of the explanation, which is, golly, we went out there. We stayed there. At the, this, nobody's ever asked this question. I, I wish I had. I wasn't smart enough to either. But nobody asked, Hoob and Brother Pete, why don't you ever go home? I mean, there is no point here where anybody goes home. I think that's extremely telling and important. In other words, follow me for just a moment. They sit there, and she doesn't show up, and they sit there, and now it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and they decide, gosh, she should be here. We can't take any more time off here. We got And they call the police. Yes, Sister Kathy's missing. Will you help us put her on your file, missing person? That's the story, I mean. We know they make the call around 1. By then, has the lawyer from the archdiocese said, okay, listen up, guys, and listen carefully. At 1 o'clock, we're going to file a missing persons report. But you and Father Coob, you and Brother Pete are not going home. You're going to sit with us because we need you here about 4 a.m. or so to be so uptight and worried and concerned that you will, quote, and this is what he told me, take a walk in order to calm your nerves. And during that walk, oh, my God, unbelievably out of the blue, I can't, that's her car. That's the nun's car right on the edge of the parking lot. How can this be? Coop told me in that interview, and I reported it. I told Brother Pete, said Coop, I know a little about police matters. Don't you touch that car, Brother Pete. You would be disturbing evidence. We will just look inside the car together and see if we can learn anything about whatever dreadful event occurred here. And we looked, and we saw no real signs of trouble. 
It was a little waste basket, he told me, turned over on the front seat, on the floor of the front seat. But, but all of us have that. How many times do you, if you have one of those little trash baskets and you go around a curb, maybe it, the little trash bag and there were a couple of balls of paper that fell out of it and they were lying on the passenger side of the front seat. We didn't make much of it, just a little turned over waste basket and we saw no other signs of any blood or any damage. So how had her car gotten here? We don't know. Then the story tails off and in the interview, two interviews I did with Coop, he made it clear that we stayed the rest of the night and worrying and upset and so on. But he neglected to say, and I've never heard anyone else say, when do these guys go home? When do they say, oh, boy, well, I'm beat. We've been at it all night. I hope to God she's all right. I'll say a prayer. They are priests, after all, and I understand quite capable of prayer. So they would be experts at that. Dear Lord, please let nothing be wrong with her. Even though she's missing, we say unto you, in the name of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, oh, please let her be okay. And then praying religiously, they get in the car. Because after all, I assume they got to go home and get some sleep and maybe even some breakfast. Uh, are they going to stay there all day, all weekend? Meanwhile, they haven't bothered to go up to the shopping center and look around there, wondering if maybe they'd see something, or ride along the route between the apartment and the shopping center. Did, her, did she have some kind of health issue and faint and she's unconscious and the car's pulled over on the side of the road? They did none of that, and none of that has ever been expressed. All of this, Shane, tells me something happened when that woman heard that screaming on that parking lot, and out of that, the nun was injured, and then they were all there in that apartment. And we come to the final piece of the puzzle. Edgar Davidson, now deceased, has told numerous people, but not me, I have not interviewed him directly myself, but I'm reporting what others said, that he got a call somewhere late evening, 10 o'clock maybe, that he was to obey his mentor, Father Maskell, uh, who often used him for ugly chores that had to be carried out. And the call he got, according to these people, many of whom have talked to Davidson, who was later a suspect in this, because he came home with his clothing all bloody and he was covered with blood and his own wife was so terrified. She said, w what's going on? What have you been doing? And he said, I got in a fight at work. Don't worry about it. It's okay. No problem. All of that. And Davidson told numerous other people before he died. I got a call. It was from Maskell. It was get over here and bring your buddy so-and-so, another figure in this uh, whole thing that was in the keepers. And we have something you need to take away and dispose of. And when he got there, there was a body wrapped in a heavy rug. And that rug was then taken and deposited in a major Baltimore City landfill inside the city limits. Now, Davidson in his life established a reputation as being unreliable and perhaps even uh, deranged. And so we have to be careful that we're not listening to the ravings of a madman. But I tell you this with factual certainty. I have listened to a tape recording in which Davidson's wife tells the FBI only three, four years ago, when they come back for one of their innumerable rechecks of everything, she tells the FBI 
he came in and he was bloody and I was scared. Why are you all covered with blood? And he wanted to get something out of the car. And no matter what you do, he said, you're not going in that trunk. You understand? You're not going to look in that trunk. I'll knock you in the head if I have to. Stop asking me questions and go to bed. <laughs> 